Welcome to Female Leaders with Courage podcast. I am joined today by the superb Karen Jones, who is Managing Director at Denison Consulting UK, Ireland and Nordics. Karen earned her Master's in Health Science from the University of Newcastle and a postgrad certificate in business coaching from Newcastle Business School and is now based at Denison UK's headquarters in Newcastle. And there was a big career in between, which uh, Karen's going to share with us today, where she started as a student nurse and gravitated through public health and then uh, left in lots of various different guises. Karen works with clients now to explore their organizational culture and help businesses drive performance, specializing in high impact development programs for teams and one-to-one coaching. Karen is passionate about effective management and leadership styles that drive compassion And she says her goal is to transform the ambiguous and unmanageable into something energizing and productive. And I know Karen and I can see that completely. According to her clients, Karen gets to the nub of a situation quickly and asks insightful and thought-provoking questions to help bring clarity and understanding. And one client described her as provocative and challenging when needed, but ultimately hugely supportive, which I see completely every time I speak to Karen. Karen, I'm so excited to have you on today. Welcome. Great, good to be here. So we're going to take this in two parts, if that's okay. We will initially explore your path and your career Mm -hmm. a little bit more, learn more about you. But I also thought we could take some time to explore some of the challenges that women can face when they find their own courage and their own inner voice and confidence and see if we can leave our listeners with a few tips and tricks that you may have learned along the way. So let's get started and I'm going to just dig a bit more about you. Mm -hmm. Um, You started your career as a student nurse in 1980 and then you left the NHS in 2010. Yes. What motivated you to actually come into the NHS and then why did you leave? So that's going to cover quite a long mm, period of okay. time. But tell us about tell us about sort of where you've been and I must have been about nine and my dad had a, a fairly serious car accident. He ended up in hospital, uh, broken ribs, numerous broken bones, uh, and he was next to a, a man who'd had his big toe taken off and it replaced his thumb on his hand that he'd had severed off. And I remember being absolutely fascinated with the whole environment of the hospital, with the nurses, how they treated my dad, uh, speaking to this um, man next to my dad and finding out all of the kind of amazing solutions that they could be doing. This man had, had his big toe on his hand as a thumb. And I remember thinking then, wow, I think I'd like to be a nurse. And that... And you were nine. I was nine. I kind of deviated to think I'd like to be a, a mounted policewoman because uh, I loved horses. Um, but I soon went off that idea because I didn't really fancy policing people. So the idea of being a nurse stayed with me. And I just about scraped through in my academic success to make it into nursing. And I did my training. I went off to Adam Brooks to do plastic surgery once I qualified. And I loved, I loved plastic surgery. Uh, We had a really old school, feisty ward sister who I adored because she was absolutely there as an advocate for her patients. Nothing was going to be a distraction from good quality patient care. And 
I was quite questioning and quite challenging. There's some hierarchy within the health service that I really didn't like very much. And the plastic surgeon would come round every day to do his ward round and all the qualified nurses, because we didn't have any students, would go off and have their coffee while he saw the patients on his own, just with the ward sister. So I remember saying to her, look, I, I don't feel happy that you know, the patients I've been caring for are seeing the surgeon when they're a bit intimidated and they may not be able to tell him what I think they may want to tell him or they may not understand what he's saying. His writing's illegible in the notes and that, that impacts my ability to give them good care. So I would like to join the ward round. And to her credit, she went up to the surgeon and said, Nurse Jones would like to join the ward round. She's the first staff nurse to ever ask. And he said, and she did then say, well, she thinks your writing's illegible, which I, it would probably have been better if she hadn't said that. But he said, okay. So I then created a new habit of joining the ward round with them. And I loved the fact that I could challenge her in that way. And if the challenge was, uh, had some merit to it, she would listen and she would change. So I loved plastic surgery nursing. It was very intimate. We had patients there for a very long time. It was obviously, it wasn't, it was, it was, you know, National Health Service plastic surgery. So it was surgery. It wasn't cosmetic in any way, uh, unless there was deep psychological issues around it. And then patients would come back as outpatients. So you would continue that relationship. And I love that. But it made me realize that we were fantastic at the physical care but we weren't really having those psychological discussions with people about altered body, altered body image. And, you know, one lady was leaning over to light a fondue and the whole thing blew up in her face. And so she had lots of psychological issues and we really didn't touch that in all honesty. So I decided I was going to go off and do a psychology degree uh, and I'd come back and revolutionize plastic surgery, nursing. Uh, and I'd come back and I'd, I'd become ward sister. Um, I went off as a mature student at 22 to do my psychology degree, having to fight lots of self-doubts that I probably wasn't quite clever enough to be there as a, as a mature student. I never quite went back into uniform. And you asked me in this preparation, you know, what's the one thing I regret? And I'm not sure I regret that or not. Looking back, I loved my nursing days. So I got my psychology degree. And then by that time, I was married, needed a kind of slightly better income because I'd been a student for three years, and I went into health visiting. And then I got my head around prevention rather than cure. And I loved the fact that as a health visitor, I was a guest in people's homes rather than they were the guest in our hospital. Such a lovely way to see it. That's lovely. Yeah. When people come to hospitals, it's an environment they don't understand. It's an environment they're scared of. We have all the power, yet when you knock on somebody's front door, you're entering their space. And I think there's a whole different dynamic and relationship, professional relationship that has to be observed. It's interesting, actually, I'm probably just going a bit off piece saying this, but yeah, that sure. reminds me a little bit about what everybody's sort of going through at the moment with coronavirus, where people, mm. you know, you can have two camps where one camp will say, oh gosh, you know, children stay away you know, don't come in. I've, you know, I'm doing a podcast. I'm doing whatever, doing a webinar. There's not, you know, the seventh mm. Zoom of the day. Mm. And then you have those, I mean, I know I'm one of them that thinks that, hang on a second, the work is in our home, not the children mm. in our work. So actually yeah, yeah. I'm going to embrace yeah. them to come in because, you know, this is their home. So yeah. quite, quite similar, isn't it? I, that I, and I think for me, that's why I refuse to put virtual backgrounds on Zooms because it stops us being realistic that people are in their homes I've discovered all sorts of things about my colleagues I wouldn't know about them. 
because I've seen a bit of their other world that I don't normally see. And I don't think we should hide that. Authenticity is key. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And no apologies. So yes, I became a health visitor. I got frustrated because I always saw the potential in health visiting. I wasn't inspired by the reality. So we ran clinics, but they were always generally for mums. We didn't run clinics in the evening. We didn't run clinics at the weekends for potential fathers or for fathers or for wider family members. And I wasn't that popular with my colleagues or indeed my manager when I used to campaign for Saturday morning clinics. Why did Um, you do that? So that it was more universally accessible? Yeah, because we were, we did our visits uh, in the day when at that time, most of the men, if they were working, were, were out to work. It was a nine to five. We got paid well. We didn't ever work weekends. We didn't work evenings. Uh, And I wasn't sure that was always good for, in terms of customer focus, as I would call it now, from a cultural perspective, we weren't very customer focused. It was a very convenient way of working for us. Uh, And so (laughs) it wasn't always popular to challenge the status quo. For other colleagues had good reasons sometimes. They had their own childcare um, and carer's responsibility. But I thought we could be more dynamic. And so I got to the point where I didn't want one more frustrating conversation with my manager. And so I saw an advert in King's College in London for a nursing research assistant. I had no idea how significant King's College was. I had no idea of the professors who were based at King's College. So I trotted up for an interview, was really chilled out. Uh, Professor Jill McLeod Clark was interviewing me. I had no idea who she was. And to my amazement, I got offered the job. Um, of course and, you did. <laughs> and absolutely adored working for her. I'm still in contact with her now. She's in her 70s. Uh, I mean, if you want an inspiring female leader, quite happy to connect you to her. She yeah. Inspirational. So I did eight years of research and kind of got really then got a bit fed up with creating research that I kind of knew that clinicians didn't really have too much time to read. And so I wanted to come back into practice in in the NHS. And then I applied for, uh, well, I did my MSc while I was doing the research. Then I applied for a public health specialist position, senior public health specialist position. I was a single parent by then. And it also meant a doubling of my salary. So that was, I really didn't think I was going to get the job. And here's where I met another inspiring female boss. And I remember her saying to me, Karen, you're really not the most qualified for this role. And I'm not sure you quite deserve the salary that it's on. She said, but I have a sense that what you don't know, I can teach you. But what you've got, I probably couldn't teach anybody else. So she said, here's the deal. I'll I'll drop your salary. I'll give you the job for six months. If you can do it, then I'll bump you up to the full salary. So I said, yeah, I'm up for that. And to her credit, she gave me the job. I did it for six months. And she said, oh, you're flying Uh, And then she gave me um, the full salary. Just needing someone to believe in you there. Yeah, there's something about, there's certain people in my life that have just spotted something very early. There's ex-husbands who have taken too long to see it. (laughs) And, you know, there's something really wonderful. My current partner spotted that so early and it's so wonderful to meet somebody who just gets you and sees you in your entirety from the word go. I remember when I first spoke to you, I just thought, I, I have to see this woman. I have to meet you. And came all the way to Liverpool. Mm, um, yeah. And just 
loved that time that we sort of brainstormed and just incredibly infectious as a, as a person, which is why I'm so pleased that you're here. Probably the wrong word to use at the moment, isn't it? But hopefully people know what I mean by that. Yeah, we can have infectiousness <laughs> on a good side. You know, it's powerful. I think I've been infected by other people in a, in a really inspiring way. And there's something about the directness, I think. Both my two best bosses have been women. And a third one, you know, I, I, I went to public health. I got a bit, there's, a, there's obviously a, a theme about getting frustrated. Public health was fabulous in many ways, but it wasn't very dynamic about really changing things. So I got more and more interested in behavioral change because public health is all about getting people to behave in a different way through choice. And, you know, influencing without authority, because you can't just go and tell people. And we're very much, you know, we're, they were, we probably don't feel we have much choice right now, but, but we do ultimately, really. We can break the rules or we can, we can keep them. So I got more and more in, into how to manage change and behavior change. And that's when I kind of made the move into organizational development. Again, another female chief exec. I was going to leave because I was fed up with public health. And she said, look, how do we get you to stay? And I said, look, I want to do more organizational development. And she said, well, okay, go and do it. I got my head around organizational development. I, I did some coaching qualifications. Then I was invited by another. There's lots of female bosses, actually. I'm suddenly realizing all my really good bosses have been females. June Tully, who was at the Strategic Health Authority, um, was putting together a corporate improvement team. And she was brave enough to say, look, this is going to be the team from hell to manage because I've asked you as individuals because you're all really good at what you do. So I was there for organizational development. Somebody else was there for lean. Somebody else was there for clinical practice and evidence-based practice. Uh, somebody else was there for strategy. So she said, I'm going to, I'm going to bring you together as a team if, if you'll come. You'll be a nightmare and I think it's going to be really hard to hold you together. But if we manage to do it, we will have a really amazing organization. And uh, Yasmin Chowdhury was the CEO at the time. So June had been given a remit for her. So she then invited me into this new corporate improvement team. And that's when I really got my head around organizational culture and leadership climate. And we had storytelling going on. We had a diagnostic on our culture. And this was back in 2010. We were pretty ahead of the game and it was really exciting. And then the political kind of tone changed and all of that innovation and bravery and courage was suddenly slashed. How uh, did that feel for someone oh. that you pumped with courage and innovation and gets frustrated? Yeah, I, 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 was, I was pretty irritated. We'd done so much on having leaders as coach. You know, I remember the finance director was really cynical about it. And not the finance director, the head of finance was really cynical about it. She, to her credit, she came on the program. She started to be, be much more of a coach rather than a tell kind of leader. And I remember her coming up to me and said, Karen, I really wasn't keen on what you were doing. I now listen to my staff members and I ask questions. And actually, they come to me less frequently now because they're solving their own problems. And I'm, I'm now a fan. And so I felt, I felt quite bereft that we were pulling the plug on all of that because it came at a cost, an investment cost. And, and that's when the chief exec of Denison, who we'd used as a diagnostic for culture, said, look, you know, I love what you've done with all of this because it became our OD framework. How do you fancy coming to work for us? You know, and I was... Well, I was probably 48 at the time, something like that, if the maths right. 
single parent thinking, oh, I'll probably on quite a nice salary. I've got quite a nice pension if I just stay another 12 years. And I suddenly thought, 12 years is a long time. I'm not sure I've, I've got the energy to stay in a shrinking, less innovative environment. So, so I jumped and then became the director for Denison for the UK, which was tough. It was me outside of the US. I'm an extrovert. I don't like to be micromanaged, but I do like to feel part of a team. And my team were in the US, pretty distant, really. So I did that for two years. And then the company that I'd brought in to look at leadership climate said, why don't you come and work for us? So I then got my head around emotional intelligence for a couple of years. Because for me, something was missing when we were looking at organizational culture. We weren't really thinking about the climate in which we were trying to have honest conversations about people's beliefs and assumptions about the current culture that they had. And so I, I learned a lot getting my head around emotional intelligence. And then to my great delight, Karl-Heinz Zuller came into post for Denison Europe. He reconnected and then invited me to come back. And, and he's just a joy for, to work for. So, yeah, so that's the kind of, it's a portfolio career, I think we now have to call it. But I think just in, in that great pathway through, you know, 30 years career, it just shows why I find you so magnetic because of that courage and that bravery and that real resistance to just follow what it seems to be quite a, you know, a, a traditional path when you can see something better and you can see something brighter mm. and you're always sort of putting yourself, you know, wanting to go on the world round and then wanting to change different things always for that greater good. And I think that's so inspiring to be around people like that how those traits that you have are all about sort of the courage and the bravery and how inspiring that is for people that, I mean, you must be told all the time that people say, oh, I wish I could be like you. Oh, I wish I could say what I thought like you. And, and then I guess there's a piece in you that kind of goes, well, why would you not be? And I, my curiosity is around why certain things are normal to some and yet appear to be incredibly mm -hmm. courageous. Whereas there'll be something that, you know, someone else will do and you'll go, oh my gosh, I wish I could do that. And, 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 mm. and I guess it's looking at that. So I'm interested about, you know, your whole career path, how you've always sort of stood up and been counted and always tried to look for making that difference and making sure that things were optimal. And even now in your, that's what you do, you know, you go into organizations to make things better and you seem to be that kind of person, but that really does take courage and, and balls to do that. So where does that come from? Yeah, well, let's not say it takes balls because I don't have any of them. So let, let there's the unconscious bias right there, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. So let you know my. I I, no, I, I used that phrase without even realizing what it yeah. meant, and that's how colloquial our language has become with yeah. that unconscious bias. That's really interesting. And, and and how you know it's 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 masculine again, isn't it? And, yeah, yeah. You know, I I I think for me, what I really learned in my two years. Of, of working around emotional intelligence is that actually we all have our inner child in us. And sometimes she's really scared and sometimes she's really bold and sometimes she's a bit naughty. But I think what it made me be really respectful of, it doesn't matter how old we get, how senior we become, we carry her or him with us. And I think what I quite quickly realized is that uh, those children are there in the boardroom too. Oh gosh, yeah, you see that a lot. Yeah, and I think it's 
the really powerful leaders are the one that know their child is there and they know what they're up to. And they know whether that child is being free and inviting others to play, or they know whether that child's standing in the corner feeling hurt and wounded and therefore protecting themselves about, uh, around whatever's going on. And, you know, when, when you said we're all different, you know, I've also been told that I can be intimidating and, and that doesn't bring me any joy because if I'm intimidating somebody else, I'm not managing my emotions well enough either uh, because to intimidate somebody else would suggest I need some sense of feeling better or better than they do in that particular moment. And, and, and that's a defense mechanism that is probably protecting my ego in some way. It could just be that you're a strong woman who knows her mind and doesn't sugarcoat and uh, yeah but, but for me you know I it, it's good to bring out the best in other people and if I'm intimidating I'm probably not bringing out the best in them either now they need to make their own choice and be courageous enough to say right 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 now I feel a bit intimidated by you and then that would pull me up and give me the feedback in the moment that would be really powerful and I think for me, what I learned to do around the emotional intelligence is to use what's in the room, be that coming from me. If, if I'm sitting there listening to a, a bunch of leaders and I'm feeling a bit irritated or a bit switched off or a bit thinking, There's, I can't grab hold of you, sometimes it's really powerful to share that because leaders often don't get told that. But I would share it from my truth about what's going on in my story. And nobody can tell me my story's not right, but they can say, wow, I, I didn't really want you to, I, I was hoping you weren't sitting there feeling that. And what I also find in the boardroom, that feelings are really quite a topic of fear. And so we, we kind of make out that they're nothing to do with business, so we don't have to face them. And whereas actually they're everything to do with business how our customers feel, how our employees feel, and we ignore them at our peril. Well, actually, it's really interesting because Harvard Business Review a few years ago now, I can't remember the exact year, said they published a report. And one thing that I sort of took from it was that 83% of issues in business are down to communication. Yeah. So it's really important. We all learn. And decisions are very emotional. Yeah. Uh, And Karl Heinz has some wonderful exercises that prove exactly that. But it's rarely a rational choice that we make. It's often a very emotional one about how things are communicated. You know, and my experience of communicating risk in research, uh, it's, it, we're not very good at it. Yeah. So I think for me, when there's a difference between what we do and when we're, how we are being. And I don't think often boardrooms uh, want to allow for that distinction. So just talking about boardrooms, you're working really high up in the top of that C-suite. And we know that, you know, there's a real minority of women sitting in those positions on those boards in in those companies. And we see that, you know, in private sector and Mm. public sector with the NHS is only 22% of women in leadership Mm. roles. Mm. Talk to me about your experience as a woman in that scenario. Do you find that there are those sort of unconscious biases in the room and you're particularly challenging as you were just saying some of those leaders who inevitably will be male talk to me about sort of what the dynamics are there yeah I mean it 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 might not it might not be political to say it but I, I don't think about gender and I get 
a little bit irritated when we talk about there has to be so much percentage of women on boardrooms. I mean, for me, I want good people in boardrooms. Yeah. I want people who understand the importance of managing people well and bringing out the best in their, the people that turn up and work for them. There shouldn't be quotas for sure. There's definitely, you know, there's, I, no, there's no room for quotas. That's silly. I, I, I think it patronizes women. Yeah. Definitely, there's a bias out there and we have to do something, you know, it's men recruiting men. And I think generally, we tend to like people who are like us. Uh, and uh, I, that's why I want to come back to your point about teams. You know, um, right now I'm working in a team full of introverts and I'm the only extrovert. And yes, that's quite exhausting. And I get quite um, demotivated by that sometimes because I know sometimes that my energy can be absolutely exhausting for them and they would really rather not have a conflictual conversation. But for me, a great team is a great team when we understand who we are and the differences we have and then we build tolerance for those differences and we begin to appreciate them and understand what we can all learn from them. But, you know, it's kind of hard when I'm interviewing. I like people who come in and shake my hand and have a really challenging conversation. Am I, am I as impressed with the quiet, reflective thinker? Uh, probably not. But then I also have to understand what job it is I'm recruiting them for. And I, I don't think sometimes we're that sophisticated. What role are we going out for? What are the traits required? You know, how often do we recruit for traits and not competence? You know, my, the, the boss in public health recruited me for the traits I had, not for the skill I had, because she knew she could teach them. What she thought she couldn't teach somebody else was standing up and trying to get people to motivate, to be motivated and inspired to do something different. My so, first boss once said to me that uh, there's three things that I, that I look for when I recruit. Uh, and there are two I can give you, skills and knowledge. The one thing I can't is what you bring, yeah. and that's attitude. Yeah. And if you've got the right attitude, it really doesn't matter. The rest of it will fall into place. And that's pretty, that echoes what you've just said. Yeah. And, 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 I, and I think for me, you know, I know we have lost clients because I've probably been a bit too open and direct. But I work with a, with a, with a boss who says, you have to be who you are. And we have to be clear what it is we do. And what we do is very exposing. Uh, and actually, if the, the honest conversations aren't going to follow from the diagnostic, then that client is not going to get the value. You know, we should find out at the, at the contracting stage how open and challenged they want to be. And, and in my experience, you know, most leaders kind of go, wow. You know, most people go, well, you know, we haven't had that kind of conversation for years. And you can see people kind of going, wow, are we okay to share what's true for us right now? Uh, I think it's efficient, but it has to come with a good intention. If my intention is to belittle or to expose unnecessarily, then I think people do protect themselves and quite rightly because they have to, their, their brains will be there to protect them and to survive. So I think we have to have a good intention, which brings us back to core values. Yeah. And people have said to me, Karen, you know, you have a velvet glove. And you think, well, as long as it feels like velvet, then maybe it's okay. But when it and feels like leather, it's not. Yeah, a boxing glove. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, that actually really beautifully links into what I was going to ask you next, is that in my introductory podcast, I talk about how women are labelled negatively because of those strong leadership skills and that ability to 
even from the you know the best intention in the right place they 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 still compassion and and not sugarcoat and you know show their truth but actually then it can sometimes be negatively labeled you know bossy aggressive feisty curt whatever i'm really interested to know as somebody that you know has got superb leadership skills if that's something that's sort of happened to you i mean you said you've lost clients but you know talk to me about kind of how how that sort of sits with you Mm. I, I think for me, I always try and speak from the eye. Here's what I'm observing. Here's what I'm feeling because I observe that. And here's now what I'm curious about. Rather than go in with, say, you know, my conclusion about you is this because this is what I'm seeing. It's, it's a very different type of conversation to have. And if I'm wrong in my, you know, I mean, Culture diagnostic is all about exposing the beliefs and assumptions we have. And we have those because we have our own inner story going on. So if I'm prepared to openly share my inner story as to why my filters are, are hooking on to what I, what I give attention to, then I think we have a very different conversation. So there is an art of having a robust discussion that feels less judgmental and is one that says, I have my own inner beliefs, values, and assumptions, they drive my intention and those intentions drive my behavior. And here's what I'm perceiving given the behavior that you've got and given the filters that I have, how do we just put that on the table and how do we talk about it? Uh, Do you have um, uh, like a tip that you could leave somebody listening to say, you know, if you just try this technique, this will really sort of help you? Yeah, yeah. I I, I learned it as um, the fear. So first of all, you, if you're having a tough conversation, you declare that it's generally tough because we have some emotion around it. So, so instead of hiding that emotion, we get it straight out there. This is a conversation I've been meaning to have for a long time. I'm, I'm quite worried about having it. So I tell you that this is emotional for me and it's, it's been difficult to even create this opportunity to have it. And then I share my intention. I'm having this conversation because... I want us to work really powerfully together, Emma. Um, So you give people a sense of, this is important to me. It's important to me because I want to create something better with you. And then you acknowledge, is this a good time for you? And then you share the truth. My truth is, it's not true, but right now when I work with you, I feel quite frustrated because you never come back to me quickly enough. And normally, you know, when we're anxious, we either don't have those conversations or we come straight in at the truth. And that truth is often judgmental about what you haven't done or, you know, how you make me feel. But you can't make me feel anything. I choose to feel that because of what I'm experiencing you do. So if we, yeah. if, if we reverse it, we have a different conversation. I'm choosing to feel irritated or neglected. That's my choice. I own that. And here's the story I've got. I don't know whether that's true or not for you. So it, I think, I, think we, I could learn from that. You know, I, I don't know, sometimes when you're so busy, you know, busy, busy, busy people just jump right into the, let's just get to the solution. Exactly. But we leave a whole trail of hurt or mistrust or misunderstanding behind that. I really hate the phrase, why well, I'm sorry, I'm busy. We're all busy. But what are we choosing? To, to manage a robust conversation well will make you less busy in the future. And we have to accept that the investment is worth it. It's worth it in the boardroom. It's worth it in the water cooler. It's worth it in the open office next to our colleague. I love that. I really love that. Thank you. Hmm. You've had a lot of challenges. You've been single parent. You've changed roles. Yeah. You 
appear to be this swan that just sort of glides through with all these amazing, this is why I find you so magnetic. So I just think, gosh, I want to be quite like this. I want to be like this. But tell me, um, what's your greatest challenge where you might not have felt quite so comfortable with something or where you think, gosh, I no, I can't do this? Yeah, I think my greatest challenge was learning how to say no and still feeling all right about myself. Because up until, you know, I think I am... And over, I'm optimistic and I'm over-trusting and I've kind of decided to stay that way and I'll take the hits that it brings. So, you know, I got married for the second time to a Greek. You know, most people would go, oh my God, why would you start a relationship with someone who lives in Athens? Whereas, you know, that didn't, didn't, didn't seem a problem to me. And we, we, we got married. And to be fair, he was always very clear that he wanted more children. Uh, and I, I loved having the two children I had and I had no problem with going down that route again. But um, I think my my body decided that that probably wouldn't be as good as my heart thought it would be. So I went into early menopause at 42. And so we chose to go down the IVF route. And for me, in all honesty, I probably didn't want more children than I had as much, uh, enough really, because I was torn between what does that say about the two children I already have uh, and that we have as a family. And I How old were your two children then, sorry? They would have been 14-ish, 12. So there was a big gap. Yeah. But, you know, I, a very I, different stage of, of childhood as well. You know, you've sort of left all of that. Oh, yeah. Know, but in my, if, if it had happened uh, and all had been well, I'd, I'd, have been, I, I'd have been really up for that. And maybe to have had a couple, not just one. But I had an abnormal smear. And I thought, okay, I had to go to Greece for six weeks at a time to have the IVF treatment. So I, you know, had to leave my two kids in the UK with some wonderful friends of mine. And I think when I got the abnormal smear, I just thought, no, this is, oh God, if if I ever got cancer because of the IVF, I didn't know whether that was a realistic fear. And I just thought, what am I doing? I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. And so for the first time, I'd been very accommodating, very yes, yes, yes. You know, I'll commute to Athens, you know, on a Friday and fly in on a Monday. Nothing was ever really too much of a, of a barrier. And I just thought, no, I'm going to say no. That dissolved the relationship. And then it got fairly unpleasant with finances. And then I had to protect the finances I had. So I, I, I went to court. And I think for me, that was a time when I suddenly thought it's okay to say no and to really be true with what I want for the people that I have to make good, really significant decisions for. And if that doesn't suit other people, I can still feel all right about who I am. To to do it respectfully, but um, I think that was one of my biggest challenges to go through that process. It became really important for me in my closure to find a judge that says, you are a reasonable woman, you are fair. It still cost me a mild fortune, but I had somebody else say to me, that was reasonable. And so that was, that was challenged to go through that process with someone who was a very skilled project manager and pretty tough in negotiating. So that was an important challenge where I learned to say no, and it's okay to say no. Yeah. And I, I can still be okay and not, I have a very, you know, had a very strong please others driver. Um, That's the thing as well. Is a lot of people will say, oh, I can't say no because I want to be liked. And there's always that sort of post no dissonance that goes on but actually you've just described you know further down the line it's much more painful yeah yeah and it's okay to say no and still be liked and actually people will respect the boundaries that you're putting in as a result 
Well, yes, exactly. And, and it's okay. It's okay for me to say no. And it's okay for them to say no. I have to be equally respectful when they say no. <laughs> uh, and it feels a bit foolish learning that at 42. But yeah, I hadn't often said no. One, one you know, a couple of times in my life where I thought, well, actually, I'm going to do that anyway. Because ultimately, nobody really has my self-interest at heart as much as I do. And I, I, if I don't own them, that's a complete waste. Is there anything that you regret? No, because I love being where I am now and I've learned so much. You know, I, I really hate it when people say, oh, you know, your, your marriage failed. And you think, I don't, I don't see it as a failure. I had some fabulous times in both of my marriages. And I've now learned so much more about the relationships I want. So I, ha- I really hate it when it gets something, when a significant experience in learning gets labeled as a failure. I had that experience, it's molded me into what I am today, and I think regrets are futile. Uh, It's much more important to say, what did I learn from that? I think I would be much more angry with myself if I continue to make the same errors, because then it's a defect. A mistake is fine, and we learn from it, but if you continue to do the same things, then it becomes defective. So, no. I think the only thing that comes to my head is, wow, what, you know, if I hadn't have left nursing, what would I have done? Because, you know, and particularly now when you see, you know, it's such a wonderful contribution that they make. And I don't think anything ever mirrors that. We just need to value it as a society because we don't. We, we give it lip service. And that now needs to change. Otherwise, none of us should clap on a, on a, on a Thursday evening at eight o'clock because they don't just need claps. They need a pay rise. I have a friend in nursing and, um, and I was listening to another nurse actually, ironically, uh, being interviewed last week. And the one thing that both of them have said is finally, we've got the recognition. Yeah. And it, and it really... Look what it took. Yeah. It, <laughs> but it made me quite emotional because, mm. you know, we've been seeing those of us that have been close to this for such a long time and to the yeah. nursing profession have kind of been trying to, to, to support. But yeah, it, it sort of takes for something so horrific for people to get their recognition but I'm really pleased that they're starting to yeah well I wonder wonder what sort of nurse you'd have been and where you'd have been yeah would you still be in plastic surgery and sort of doing the psychology or do you think that you'd have I think I would have liked transformed social care by now or no no I would have liked to have been a terrifying matron (laughs) (laughs) terrifying in the sense of maintaining standards because I, I just think, you know, they were so wonderful when you heard their footsteps on night duty and you just think, oh God, they're coming. And they're, they're purely coming to check that you are giving the patients the best you can give them. It's that intention again, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Uh, and, you know, and, and hearing about the, the, the care workers who, you know, one woman on Radio 4 the other morning, you know, is living now in the home and not with her own family so she can care for these residents. And you just the think, people have oh. moved out for 12 weeks away from their kids, yeah. Exactly, that was the yeah. woman I met. And you just think, wow, and, and there's no bonus. There's no bonus for her in doing that. And think about, you know, I also heard the story of a chairman of a company who's donated his salary or forgone his salary this year, but he, he had a bonus of 57 million the year before. So for me, foregoing your salary is meaningless. Whereas asking for care workers and NHS people to, to, to buy a badge for £1.70, I, I don't know what we're talking about. And for me, that's about, well, what, what value does that live at? 
We're going to give you a badge, but we're going to charge you for it. Really? <laughs> and yet we have chairmen who are paid 47 million bonus. And you wonder why employees get cynical about a diagnostic on culture. Amazing companies are really genuine about that. And they want to have that inclusive conversation. But really, I'm kind of ashamed sometimes to say I work in business. Yeah. In all honesty. It's very humbling what's going on at the moment, isn't it? Hmm. Very humbling. Because be. Those people are, you know, they're rushing into danger. We say this whenever there's a big crisis and catastrophe in the country, but those people that run towards the danger and, and you look in comparison, you know, I mean, there just is no comparison, is there? They're just, just a whole different type of person. Yeah. And maybe they have different traits, which is why they're in the caring profession. But really, that doesn't mean to say we have to pay them a pittance. Yeah, I, I think there's positive changes coming, definitely. Well, I, I, I sincerely, if there's not positive changes now, then I think we should all take a big look at ourselves. Which leads me on to emotional intelligence. We've covered it a little bit before, but how do you think being an expert in emotional intelligence and having that you know, superb depth of courage, how do you think that they align and power each other or do they? Well, I, I hate being called an expert in emotional intelligence because sometimes <laughs> I get it really wrong. Well, you're <laughs> human, right? You're human. Yeah. As my daughter, partner and son will, will tell you. So I don't think you can ever be an expert in emotional intelligence. You can just be prepared to keep learning about it. So I've forgotten what the question was. How does it align to, your, to the courage? Do the two sort of oh, yeah. marry? I think for me, I... I you know, the basis, the fundamental uh, foundation of emotional intelligence is self-regard and regard for others. So how much do I like myself when I've made a mistake or I haven't, you know, if I don't think I've done this interview very well, how long do I, I spend going, oh God, I could have sounded a bit more, oh my, oh my, my throat looked a bit saggy, blah, blah, blah. And my regard for others, you know, how much do I still like other people if they don't do what I hope they're going to do or they don't respond in the way I want them to? Uh, and so for me, um, you know, I have to check in with my, I, you know, I still have the little girl in me at 10 went for remedial reading classes, you know, who went to university thinking, oh, I probably shouldn't be here because, you know, I was a mature student. I didn't have the A-levels and I wrote an essay and maybe they got me mixed up with another Karen Jones because it's a common name. I still have all of that. I over-prepare when I do a presentation and then I go in and I don't take my notes, but I somehow I have to do all of that preparation in order to think, well, I know everything in case I need to refer to it and then I don't need to at all. So, but I think there's something about going into a room knowing I bring her with me and I, I like her and I'll be tender to her and realizing that everybody else has that too. Uh, and, you know, the self-awareness piece of emotional intelligence is to say, okay, you know, when I first go into a room and, and I suddenly start to speak faster, just to think, what's that about? You know, uh, sometimes I really love to know, I, I would rather not know who's in the room because then you can see everybody as an individual and how they present. If I know that I've got the chief finance officer or I've got this person in the room, you know, that whole thing about, well, I don't know enough about their business kicks in. And you think, well, I'm, I'm not here to know enough about their business. I'm here to understand culture and climate and to share and to um, challenge around that. I don't need to be the expert. You're the expert in your own business. So 
it's about catching that early and saying, okay, what, what's, what's those butterflies in my stomach about? Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm doing that little story I have about, oh my God, what if they ask me a question and I can't answer it? Well, you know, it's okay to say, well, that's a great question. I, I can't answer it. Can anybody in the room shed light on that? It, it's okay to do that. And uh, for me, that's, that's the emotional intelligence piece to say, I'm okay in who I am, regardless of how well this day goes. Because sometimes it goes really well and sometimes it doesn't. And actually, maybe to share that in the room if it's appropriate. To say, you know what, I'm feeling a bit nervous in front of you guys. How many other people might feel nervous in front of you? And having people in front of you feeling nervous, what's the payoff for you? That's what Brené Brown says is courage, isn't it? It's been sort of that yeah. real vulnerable yeah, yeah. You know, I'm scared. I'm frightened. I'm not great. You know, I'm not perfect. And it's embracing. It's not courage isn't jumping off a cliff and doing a bungee jump, is it? It's no, those I daily think... practices of sort of checking in with yourself. And Exactly. Uh, you know, I, I remember, you know, when people have come for interviews, being really impressed with the person that kind of has made a mistake and the one that's prepared to say, I'm really sorry. Can I just start again? Because I've just lost where I am. And you just think, wow, that would never stop me giving you the job. In fact, it would make me really impressed that you've got the wherewithal to do that. Yeah. And I think people are starting to see a lot more of that actually now, aren't they? Where, you know, you used to always have that real polished corporate face and game face. And now, yeah. you know, yeah. it's much more authentic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, we all have a vulnerability now, you know, in the middle of a crisis, you don't want someone going, oh, I don't quite know what, you know, if, if there's a cardiac arrest, you don't stop and go, oh, well, I'm a bit nervous now. You know, you just, you remember your training and you get in and you have a go. But I, I think there's something about how do we create a climate around us that makes other people feel okay about also declaring the vulnerability that they may have. And then I think we get much better decisions made if everyone says, I'm not quite, I'm not sure. Yeah. But, you know, let's try and make the best decision we can be sure of whilst declaring you know i mean there's i would love politicians right now to say actually guys we got that wrong but we've learned from it and we've now put some things in place that was powerful learning not everybody can get it right all the time but be transparent i know they've got a difficult balancing act to to, to balance but really i mean please respect and say actually that wasn't working as well as we hoped well, this is unprecedented. So this is the time that we can experiment, get it wrong, try again, and just have those sure. grown-up conversations together, isn't it? And people are ending up being much more innovative. So we should learn from that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and just speaking about external forces, um, another person that I just think is incredibly inspirational is Simon Sinek, just how he sort of captures leadership and keeps yeah. it all very simple. He seems to think that bravery and that courage comes from those external forces where, you know, you are around people that give you that, that reinforcement and that sort of push. In terms of sort of your bravery, who's around you that inspires you? And when you have that bad day goes, come on, Karen, you, you've got this. Where do you go for your sort of energy and reinforcement? Yeah, my, my partner who pulls me up when he hears that going on who loves me for, for who I am and that's that's inspiring it's really wonderful to be loved for who I am rather than who I think I need to be or who I might become I'm on my daughter right now I'm I'm isolate you know I'm I'm in lockdown with my daughter she's a great sounding board and I'm getting to know my colleagues more personally we're spending more time together on zoom in a more regular way and 
being much more open well with certain colleagues some of them really don't enjoy that but um some but of if they're introverts they won't know no no they'll be enjoying this time with no zoom <laughs> well but even you know i have some colleagues who who are pretty introverted but they're they're doing some amazing growth uh, and really stepping into the space uh, and really holding holding a different type of conversation. Uh, and I think it's, you know, we've said to the team, it's okay to say, you know, we've got a mechanism for red flagging stuff. You know, let's red flag stuff when we're mildly irritated or mildly whatever before it becomes a big issue. Let's put it on the table and then we can decide which bit we want to own. Yeah. This is where, you know, in crisis, you, things are magnified, aren't they? So you see the best in people. You see the worst in people yeah. it just really truly highlights and there are some magnificent yeah. like you say some growth phases for lots of people and the pivoting of businesses and the mindsets of people and it, it's it's yes to watch and you'll have days where you, you know I speak to lots of people exactly. say, a great day today and then the next yeah. day they're not and yeah. but I'm just going to ride it and tomorrow will be great and and I think that that's it's lovely when you hear that from people where they don't feel that they've got to sort of be here stepping up every day, you know, with the perfect game face. Exactly. And that's about being true, you know, uh, and, and it's okay. We, we can come down if we need to come back up. <laughs> we can regroup. And it's uh, good to do that as well because you have to go somewhere for your energy. Yeah. And it's good for your colleagues to know that you're dipping uh, and maybe they can just send you a virtual cup of tea or a virtual bunch of flowers. Just lean in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and between the teams, somebody will have the energy to pick to pick up the, the, the slack. So what's the scariest moment in your life mm. where you've sort of needed people to lean into you? I think the scariest moment when I was when I thought my twenty seven year old daughter had ovarian cancer after going in for a, a simple cyst removal. She went into hospital, I took her in, I said goodbye, you know, she, she went down. And then the next thing I know, she's calling me up to say, mum, just had a junior doctor tell me that he may need to give me a hysterectomy because I might have ovarian cancer. <laughs> and I kind of went, whoa, well, just don't let them do anything. Let me, let me come back there. Uh, whiz back to the hospital. <laughs> and this junior doctor, um, now we all have to train. I, you know, I, I understand that. But he was quite, quite... Um, detachedly telling my daughter yes you know we've, we've done some bloods your bloods are very high uh, extremely high uh, it may mean that um, actually this isn't a cyst it's ovarian cancer and we may just take your uterus out and I said look I can see that you're a doctor in training right now I said you know this is my daughter who's 27 uh, uh, that's quite a significant thing you're telling us now having been prepared for uh, a cyst removal um, I really don't want her to go down to surgery until I, we see the surgeon. The tigeress came out in me, really. Uh, I have to say, my, my daughter was amazing. She just went into, she said, Mum, I, I could see that you were struggling. And she just went into, okay, she was mispractical. And so that was probably the worst three hours that I waited for. Uh, and in the end, it wasn't that. It was a whole much bigger story. And she has a long-term disease that she has to live with, but she hasn't got ovarian cancer. And, and, and the two of us said, look, how do, how do we keep that moment when we thought that you were going to die? So now when I'm living with you and you irritate me because you don't quite shut the draw drawers or you don't quite put your stuff away or you, how do we 
so we kind of thought, okay, we went to local pottery and we bought a cup and saucer. So we both have one each. They're slightly different. And we said, okay, every day let's drink uh, our coffee wherever we are from our cup and saucer and just remind us of how we felt when we thought we were going to lose each other. Uh, and you just kind of think, you know, it's like in this crisis, how do we remind ourselves how we felt in this moment of fear when things go back to normal? Because I'm just writing an article right now to say, do we really want to go back to normal? Because normal was, you know, a doctor working in the NHS from an ethnic minority. If he dies of COVID-19, his family, not, you know, um, practically stand a chance of being deported because our law says they could they could be you know and you just think do we really want to go back to that being the normal for nurses being paid 25k a year and footballers are on 60 grand a week so there's lots of normal i don't want to go back to apparently um in the news last week only nine percent of people want to go back to normal let's create a new normal yeah I think that that is much more considered where maybe, you know, economics doesn't come before ecology. So, you know, I think there's something about how do our our memories are short and our brains are wired, you know, to be on the alert for those kind of stuff, but we soon go back to the good old habits or the bad old habits. So, you know, for me, that was a moment and it felt really important to just remind myself of how we, what we felt when we thought that was a reality. It's true, actually, because those moments that you have that real anxiety and fear are probably what turns you into being most grateful, actually. Mm-hmm. So conversely, what is it that you're now learning to be grateful for, sort of, obviously, your daughter's health, which I'm really pleased that she's mm. well again, but you know, what, what is it that you're going to come out of this grateful for? People. Um, for me, yeah, it's nice to have a nice car to drive, although I haven't got one right now because I'm trying to do without one, but it's people. You know, we have a fantastic street app going on. Uh, I went running two weeks ago, really badly scraped my knee. You know, my daughter took a photograph and put it on the face app. I had people delivering bread to me, arnica, aloe vera plants in case you know steri strips dressing pads it, it was it was wonderful everybody saying how's the knee karen uh, for me it's people that really make life i can't talk to a car and i can't talk to a nice cashmere jumper that i'm wearing i can feel good in it but that's about as far as it goes it's people that make me smile and make me cry and make me think Oh God, you know what? And somehow the more we suffer, the the better we are with each other. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could continue to be wonderful when we suffer, but also be amazing with each other when things are good? Yeah, we're learning to live back in community again, aren't we? Exactly, exactly. I, I mean, I have strong affiliation as part of my values on the Hogan. So it's always been important to me to feel affiliated and a sense of belonging. You know, I like going into my local cafe and they know how I like my coffee makes me gives me a warm glow um that belonging yeah and i suppose that's why i do the job i do because we're at work more than we're with our family and i hate that we talk about work life balance because it's work leisure you know leisure is part of life and so is work so let's stop talking about work and life because we need to feel alive when we're working and amazing cultures with fantastic leaders 
create that. And, and so for me, it's, it's, I, I get pretty low when I'm with people I can't resonate with who really have very different values to the ones I have. Tears the, you know, scares, scares the life out of me because you think, oh my God, the world could be so ugly so quickly. For yeah. me, for me. Yeah. I've loved listening to your pals of wisdom. I just have one more question. Sure. I'm hoping that there will be some listeners out there that are coming to this podcast to just try and feel part of a community, part of that belonging we just talked about. And mm. I guess looking for some inspiration or empowerment or some strength or to find something to dig deep that, you know, they can, they can change some of their fears and anxieties so that they can sort of overcome maybe some things that are holding them back. What advice would you give to anybody listening now? I mean, obviously you've had lots of different life stages where you've had to dig deep. Mm. What would you say to somebody listening now? What would you say to your 25-year-old self? Probably not to wait for advice from others, actually. I struggle with the word empowerment, really. We have it on our diagnostic. Um, but nobody else can empower me but me, really. I mean, we can, other people can create a climate that makes it easier for me to have a go at something without worry or fear. But at the end of the day, I have to give myself recognition for what I'm proud of, what I know I could do differently, but also for what I forgive myself for. And don't wait for other people to do that for you. Because if they do, it's great. And if they do it well, it's wonderful. But if they don't do it, you're always waiting for it and it may not come. So at the end of the day, stop and say, what am I proud of today? That builds our self-regard. We're, we're really good at saying, oh my God, what could I have done better? Most of us don't have a problem to do that. But very few of us will say, what am I really proud that I've done today? I wouldn't wait for advice from others. And I certainly wouldn't take mine very seriously. <laughs> really. Because <laughs> you could probably do it much better for yourself. Well, you know yourself better than anybody knows you, yeah. Yeah, obviously. I mean, share with other people, but, but don't, don't wait. Don't wait for other people to do that for you. Learn how to do it yourself. And I'm still learning. And I'm always, not always very learning. good at it. I think we're all still learning. Yeah, exactly. And enjoy the, the classroom. Karen, thank you so much for your time today. I could sit here and talk endlessly with you, but um, our, our time is coming to an end. Uh, I've really welcomed your time. Thank you so much. And I really hope that anybody listening has uh, really understood why I've invited you and why I've been so excited to talk to you today. So thank you. Um, that, and else, the other way around, well, wh why I'm here talking to you. So oh, well, that's very kind of you. Thank I would you. hold the mirror back up. Thank you. And so for anybody listening today that is looking uh, to overcome some of those challenges and disregard the fear, I really hope that this has helped and that you can take some of these tips and little toolkits that Karen's provided today. And we look forward to hearing your stories. But until then, thank you very much for your time. Stay safe and stay brave. Bye.